We title our church Good Shepherd Community Church. We've, we've had that title for many, many years now. Good Shepherd Community Church. And this is one of those passages that I think illustrates why we would name our church that. He is such a good shepherd. Uh, to think of, of our God as a shepherd is something that came quite natural for King David, right? As he was out there and tending his sheep uh, long before he was king, the Lord just impressed upon him the way that he cared for him, just like David was caring for his own sheep. And how that Psalm 23 really builds that out, right? He, he leads us beside the quiet waters, and he restores our soul, and on and on and on. So be thinking about the good shepherd. Why is he good? How do we see his goodness as we move through these verses today? I titled the sermon this morning, The Shepherd is the Seeker. We have Jesus moving kind of three phases to his ministry. This is that middle phase. We're approaching very quickly the passion, the work of Christ as he lays his life down to pay for sins. But uh, as we draw to a close, there's a lot of teaching he does in these middle uh, sections of his ministry. And so chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, I titled Disapproval and Grumbling. Verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, now, don't you just kind of have a little deja vu here? I feel like we've been here before. If you were here when we covered the early chapters of Luke, you remember when Jesus called uh, Levi, the tax collector? And then there was what, what I called the sinner's feast. Levi, he, the Matthew, the tax collector, he called all his friends together, all the tax collectors and sinners. And they had a big feast at his big house up on the hill. And Jesus was the honored guest. And Jesus went. And guess who was outside that house grumbling? Now, the Pharisees and scribes, almost these exact same words, they grumbled. Hey, this man, he's supposed to be a teacher, a leader, a rabbi. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. Now, for those who weren't here when we covered this, this amazing call of Matthew, tax collectors were the worst of the worst in society. They were the lowest of the low, the most hated, the most reviled. Uh, they were seen as, as uh, those who had turned their back on the, uh, the Jewish nation. Traitors, really. They'd sold out to the Romans. They were ripping people off, and they would invent their own taxes to pad their own pockets. It was a terrible scenario, and they were extremely hated. The fact that Jesus would go and have dinner with them was mind-blowing. And then there's this other category, sinners. This is kind of a catch-all category. This would be the prostitutes, the thieves, those who made no bones about it. The, we are sinners. We will not try to live up to the religious establishment and the bar of righteousness they set. We will live on our own, our own way. And they were relegated to this kind of group, sinners. And Jesus would eat with those people too. He blew their minds and it caused them to grumble, and, and very much they, they hated the fact that Jesus had a following and was, in a sense, setting this example. How, how dare, what a terrible example this is. I always like to make sure we're clear on this. Sometimes people think that Jesus just wasn't really 
he didn't like religious people, but he loved just the authentic sinner types, right? He loved just hanging out, shooting the breeze, playing pool, you know, drinking with these guys. Th- that's not what Jesus is doing. When it says he eats with tax collectors and sinners, these are evangelistic meals. He is on mission. He's there with a message. Now, he's there with love. He's there with a a bridge, but he's also there with an emphasis on this word. Repent. Repent. Now, I want you to see how much the word repent and repentance is a theme through these short verses that we're going to cover today. Jesus is not just kicking back and having fun and joking around and joining them in the gutter. He is going into the gutter to tell them good news about the kingdom and invite them into the light, into life and joy and forgiveness. These are missional meals. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, they believed that that was the opposite response, that Jesus instead should stand off, judge, and then hold these people at arm's length. Don't threaten your own righteousness by being in the mix with them. I mean, to even go in a home of a sinner like this was to endanger your own cleanliness and right standing before God, correct? Well, not for Jesus. Not for Jesus. He was the one who, when, when he touched an unclean person, the person was made clean. Jesus did not ascribe to this, this, this posture of hold people at a distance who don't measure up to the level of righteousness that has been esteemed. So he told them this parable. I'm struck by verse 3. It's, it's a fascinating way of phrasing it. The original text says he told them this, this parable, not these parables. Okay, so this is fascinating. There's three parables in Luke chapter 15. But Jesus tells them really as a parable. These, they, they build out. They're all one story. It's kind of a three-in-one. There are different parts of it. But they all have the same theme. So let's consider this. We have the lost sheep and the lost coin. We're going to cover those two today. Next week, the lost son or the prodigal son as we know it. They all have the same emphasis. Jesus wants to tell three different ways, increasing each time the level of value on what is lost. And so you begin with this lost sheep who is sought by the shepherd and then found and restored and then celebrated. Then you move to a lost coin that is lost and then searched for, found, restored, and celebrated. And then, next week, the sun, the sun. And we'll look at more detail at that. But the same theme carries throughout. And it's, it's that lesser to greater argue, arguing that Jesus does. If a sheep, certainly a coin, and certainly a son, if you would search for a sheep, Wouldn't you search for a coin? Oh my goodness, all of us would search for the sun, right? All of this is his answer to their grumbling as to why are you going there, Jesus? And he's saying, I'm searching. I'm searching for my sheep. I'm searching. I'm going to where they are. And I'm proclaiming the good news. 
he really speaks to the value of a soul. How important is a soul? The soul of a sinner, the soul of one who is lost, who needs Christ. How important is it? More important than a lost sheep? Absolutely. More important than a lost coin? Absolutely. And so he lands on the, the lost son. Now, let's begin here with this, this flow here. This is the parable. We'll start with the first piece of this parable, the lost sheep. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? So now, just to begin, he's re- responding to the grumblers. And he says, which of you, okay, Pharisees, scribes, if you, let's say you have a hundred sheep and you lose one, you're, of course you're going to go after it, right? All of you are, are going to do that. So he begins with this, this, this fascinating parable of a shepherd. Now, it, it could be offensive for these Pharisees and scribes to even imagine themselves as shepherds because they're so up here, right? Shepherds are down here. They're, they're not esteemed. Now, they're above tax collectors, but not by a whole lot. In, the, in this economy, this, this social economy. And Jesus, I think, enjoys making some of these comparisons because these guys were so puffed up and prideful. He says, let's say you're shepherds. Let's say you had 100 sheep. It's a large flock. In fact, this is a larger flock than most normal-sized flocks of the day. So what is he saying of this shepherd? Well, this shepherd is, is, a, is a pretty well-to-do shepherd. He's got a large flock of sheep. There may be some things in here that help us understand this parable a little bit. It's possible that not all of these sheep are his own sheep, but that he's giving, given care for all of these sheep, or that there's other shepherds also in the mix, and they're going out together with this large flock. And then in the middle of all this, you have a missing sheep, a missing sheep. Now, how would this happen? I brought my friend Wooly he lives in my office. He hasn't actually had a chance to come out for many years, um, but uh, he lives in my office, and he is prone to wander. It seems like every time he comes out, he's getting lost. Um, let's say Wooly is one of the 99, and I'm leading my sheep out of the sheepfold, out of the pen, into the open country to graze. Now, in order to get to the good green grass, we may have to go through the valley of the shadow of death, a dangerous place. We may have to go through some wilderness and somewhere along the way on, on our path to those greener pastures, Wooly, dumb sheep that he is, right? He just wanders off. He just heads off. And somewhere over here, he finds a little spot. He, he lays down, and sheep are funny like this. Sometimes, especially when they're very thick and, and wooly, they'll lay down and nestle up in a little corner here and the briars will grab onto their wool, and they don't realize it. They fall asleep, and they're rolling around, and they can end up, weird enough, they can end up on their back, caught, and and their wool is stuck in the thicket, or they'll wander right off the edge of a a cliff and fall down into a, a, a ravine. Very dangerous place, because if a flash flood occurs, it's just instant death. It'll wash right out. There's a sheep that's gone missing. What is this shepherd going to do? Well, you might say, hey, that's an inconsequential loss. You've got 99. What's the big deal? It's just one sheep. Not according to Jesus. And really, I mean, 
as he tells this parable, I think all of them would agree, we're responsible for this sheep. Even if the sheep has died, we have to bring evidence of his death. We, we have to show this sheep is dead. Otherwise, I could answer to the owner of this flock for eating the sheep. Maybe I got hungry, decided to just make a meal of him. I need to find this sheep. I need to find him. So he leaves the 99. Now, I heard, I must have heard this on the radio. I, I just, let's just clear this up. The Lord does not risk or endanger the 99 in order to find the one. Okay, so whoever came up with that wacky idea that God is a God who takes risk, or here's, here's, here's what I know you've heard on the radio, reckless love, God's love is reckless. He risks everything because you mean so much to him. Let's be clear. The 99 are not threatened. They are, not th- they are safe. They're in the open country, and I would say likely they're under the care of other shepherds. As the shepherd of this lost sheep goes to find him. So to be clear, uh, risk and chance fall into the same category with our all-sovereign God. They don't exist. They don't exist. God has never risked anything. If you are in absolute control at all times, in all places, the, the, the category of risk doesn't exist. You don't risk anything. Nor does chance. The roll of the dice, there's no randomness there. There's no chance. Chance is impossible with the sovereign God who is. So he leaves the 99, and they are safe. He wouldn't risk 99. That's that's reckless, and God is not reckless in his love of the sheep, ever, in any way. So when you sing that song, and by the way, this week it got stuck in my head because I I was going to say this. I I like to say uh, steadfast love of God. And it works. You could change that one little phrase in your mind, and then that song is awesome, I, th- I think, if, if, if it works, at least in the, in the chorus. So he is not risking the 99. He is going after the one who is, at this point, lost and helpless. Here's what he does not do. Sit down and start calling. Come on, sheep. Come here. You know, he's not waiting for the sheep to clean up his act get himself unstuck, crawl up the cliff, and come back to the shepherd. How many religions operate that way? Have you thought about that? You clean yourself up, you be good enough for the Lord, and then he'll accept you. That is not what the good shepherd is teaching about how he interacts with his sheep. He goes searching He is the one who is seeking this lost and helpless sheep. He knows the sheep can't save himself. The sheep is totally unable to save himself. In fact, that sheep is probably laying out there, and they they said in, in Israel, if a sheep gets stuck, especially on his back, in a briar on a hot day, it's two hours and he's dead because he'll start freaking out and he'll bloat up and then the heat will overwhelm him and he'll die. Now, in a, in a cold zone, he could last a long time like that. But eventually, you've got wolves, you've got uh, threats that are going to come after that helpless sheep. That, that's a sheep that needs rescuing. 
And the shepherd is the one to come and save the day. So I want to just make this clear. That's why I titled the sermon this, The Shepherd is the Seeker. There was this movement in churches about being seeker-friendly or seeker-sensitive, and it's just the most obviously untheological approach to church. People who are lost are not seekers. They're not seeking. We're the seekers. We're seeking to save the lost. We're commissioned by the the good shepherd who came to seek and save that which is lost. And so it is the shepherd who is the seeker. Listen to the, the, the prophecy in Ezekiel 34. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Then... He sends His only Son, Jesus. Think of this. And Jesus, in His own words, is saying, that's me. That's me. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The shepherd is the seeker. Now, as He is seeking, He's speaking. Okay, so if, you, if you're the shepherd, where, where do you begin your search? Well, you know the path that you took to get to the grazing So somewhere along the way, you just begin to retrace your steps. But you don't know how far that sheep has wandered or at what point he went off the trail or off the cliff or into the briars. And so you're probably speaking and maybe you're singing, right? You remember the verse where Jesus says, my sheep hear and they follow me. The shepherd's voice was everything for the sheep. And so that that shepherd would be speaking as he's searching. Where are you? Now, a flock that had an appropriate number, he may even have a name for this sheep, right? He knows our name. And so he's speaking, and he's he's singing, and he's looking and searching. And at, at some point along the way, he would hear the cry. So the voice of the shepherd is heard. What is our response? Cry out, save me. And he comes to the to the sheep. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I I know my own. Look at the possessive words here. I know the ones that I own, mine. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then a few verses later, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they, they follow me. And I give to them eternal life. They will never perish. Why? Why will they never perish? Because no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Oh, friends, good shepherd community church. What a shepherd we have here. He sought us. He found us. He rescued us. He laid his life down to pay for our sins. And He holds us with an unrelenting grip. No one will snatch you out of His hands. No one. Our salvation is sure. And eternal life is our joy. It is our promise. And it is certain forever. Now, rescue and rejoicing, verses 5 and 6. Look at this. Rescue and rejoicing. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. I love this. So he's searching, 
He hears this poor little sheep cry out. He comes and he rescues him. He picks him up and he sees if he's okay, checks his legs, checks his ears. Yep. And he lifts him up. Now, depending upon the size of the sheep and the, and the location of, the, of, of where he found him, this, this, this could be a hundred pound animal. Okay. So he, he lifts him up and he would do this. He set him up on his shoulders right on his back. Sometimes, if they were really big, they would tie the legs right here around him like a necklace or a backpack. And he would begin then to uh, traverse the terrain and try to get back up onto the trail where he could then carry this sheep back home. Now, as he's doing this, put yourself in the shoes of the shepherd. Was this your plan for the day? A lost sheep? Is this convenient? Is this what you would choose to do? No. This little wandering sheep has greatly inconvenienced you. But look at what the shepherd's doing. He's rejoicing. He is rejoicing that he has found this little lost sheep. I I found this in Jerusalem when we were there. It's one of my favorite souvenirs from our, our trip. This is something I've always wanted to find from Israel is a carving of the good shepherd with the sheep on his back carrying me. That's me. And that's Christ, right? He, that's, that's what it's like. Now, here's the problem with this carving, though. This guy isn't rejoicing enough. He's a little serious, right? He, I want to see a happy shepherd here. And this guy looks just a little annoyed. The shepherd finds the sheep. He doesn't quit until he finds it, but when he finds it, he rejoices. He lays it up on his shoulders with joy and singing, celebrating. This is what he is not doing. He is not an unwilling shepherd. He's not silent. He's not grumpy or grumbling. He's not annoyed. The stinking sheep is constantly wandering off. Here I am rescuing it again. He says, come on. He's not chewing it out all the way home. He is rejoicing in the return of this sheep. This sheep finds great comfort, great joy in the voice of the happy shepherd, the celebrating Savior. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep, uh, my sheep that was lost. So the few, a few things st- stuck out to me in this. He comes home. He comes home. That's the sheepfold. He's, he's back to his dwelling. That's not the open country out in the pastures. So I would say that somebody has probably brought the rest of the flock back home. He comes, and by the way, these people know They know that the sheep was lost. They know he went searching. It could be nightfall. It it may be that he came in after the sun has gone down. He returns with the sheep. And then he says, let's celebrate. Come on over. Let's celebrate. And maybe that night, depending upon how little that sheep was, maybe he got to be in the celebration too. The shepherd is overjoyed that he could find his sheep. 
and he is so connected to this sheep and his return that he wants to invite his friends and neighbors to come and celebrate. You see the joy of the shepherd. This is a shepherd who is overjoyed. He loves his sheep dearly. This is our Savior, friends. In his own words, if anyone could describe what the shepherd knows when salvation comes, it's Christ. These Pharisees and scribes, they have no idea what's going on right now, but we do. We, we, we understand this at Good Shepherd Community Church. Now, repentance or self-righteousness, verse 7. Watch where Jesus goes. This is such an abrupt shift. Just, just, just right in their face. Watch this shift. Verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Wow. So first, let's consider this. We've got joy in heaven. Celebration in heaven. Jesus is pulling back the curtains for us. We're getting a bit of a glimpse. This is the Father's joy, the Son's joy, the Spirit's joy, their communal joy, but also the the celebration of all of heaven. When a sheep repents and is saved, What's interesting is the entire focus up until this verse is about the work of the shepherd. The shepherd is the one who's seeking. He seeks the sheep. He finds the sheep. He scoops up the sheep. He is restored to the sheep, brings home the sheep rejoicing. And all of a sudden, we have this word repentance. And you're like, well, wait a second. What is that? That's something that the sheep does, right? That, that people, sinners are called to repent. So Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, and this is the theme of his meal. This is his goal in going. Repentance. Sinners, turn, come home. Come home. And so immediately we're struck with this, well, which is it? Is it the shepherd seeking or is it the sinner repenting? And the answer in the scripture is yes. That's exactly what it is. Here's a word for you to write down. It's a a word that really helps with some of the deepest theology of your Bible. The word is concurrence. Concurrence. What we find in our Bibles is that from cover to cover, both of these topics are taught. They seem to contradict one another, but they don't. Not in the mind of God, not in the experience of us, really, If we dig deep enough, we find that absolute divine sovereignty, God is the one who seeks and saves, comes together to dovetail perfectly and and somewhat mysteriously with human responsibility. That is the call. Repent of your sins and you will be saved. And so sometimes we struggle with this because you're, you're saying, well, wait a second. I mean, I turned to Jesus. Yes, you did. I I repented of my sins. Absolutely, 
You did. And I was saved. Yes, you were. And exactly as true as that, I was helpless, I was lost, I was blind, I was a rebel, and the shepherd sought me, and he found me, and he saved me, and he restored me. Yes, that's all true as well. He did that. Hmm. The question really isn't, did I or didn't I? The question is, how? How? How could I see? How could I call to Christ to save me? How, how did I want salvation? And the answer is, he found me. He found me. Look, look at this. This is what I would say. Our turning to him reveals his finding of us. There's a cause and effect that flows here. My repentance reveals his work. His regenerating work in my heart shows itself in save me. I turn from my sins. I trust you as Lord. Our turning to him reveals his finding of us. That may be the, the, the most concise way to try to put an answer to, did God save me or, or did I repent? And the answer would be yes, he saved you and you repented. That's how it happened. Hmm. The emphasis here, though, is really targeting the Pharisees and the scribes. And in this situation, they are referred to as, I think, the 99 quote-unquote, righteous, who need no repentance, right? Here's the righteous ones, the grumblers, the complainers. Oh, you hang out with these sinners, these tax collectors, these people. They're not worthy, but, but, but we are. We're righteous, right? Let me read it again with that in view. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Key word, circle that in your Bible than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Who on this earth needs no repentance? The answer is no one. Listen to where we were in Luke 5. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Almost word for word. Jesus answered them and said, well, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. You remember where we were with that. The Pharisees may have thought, oh, well, good, that's good. Good for you. Wait, you mean, was he saying something about us? Yeah, he's saying self-righteous people don't cry out for salvation. They don't need a Savior. They point the finger, they judge, and they're blind to their need of saving. Friends, self-righteousness is targeted once again by Jesus. He says, I have come for those who are sick for those who are downcast, for those who are poor, prisoners, blind and oppressed. I have not come to, to save people who are not looking for salvation. Ironically, it may indeed have well been that, that the Pharisees and scribes 
in the mix, if they would have gone, they may have been the worst sinners of all in that mix of tax collectors and sinners. They were just self-righteous and blind. They walked around in piety, trusting in their own works, judging those who didn't measure up. Isaiah 53 reminds us, in case we ever think that we are fine on our own, all we, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. Some people have turned to religion and works to try to prove themselves good enough. That's called turning astray. Some people have turned to prostitution or tax gathering or whatever it may be. Just blatant and obvious sins. The fact of the matter is, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We all need saving. You grow up in the church, you grow up as an atheist. You need saving by Jesus. Now let's go to the seeker of the lost coin. The seeker of the lost coin. Verse 8. What woman, just pause here, now Jesus is saying, <laughs> just, I, I just got to think, there's, there's got to be some of these guys who are offended that Jesus would be bringing into the, the equation. What woman? Okay. Now in this day, women were looked down upon majorly. Jesus never conducted his ministry that way. But there would have been some Pharisees and scribes who would have taken issue that Jesus would have used a parable to teach them and employed women to do so. Jesus didn't back away. He knows exactly what he's doing. Going right at it. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses a coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? What we find here is this is likely a poor woman. A woman who has a treasured possession. Maybe this was a gift at the death of a relative. Ten silver coins. Now, one of these coins was worth about a day's wages. So we're not talking massive amount. But if you make, say, minimum wage is what, $13.50 now in Washington, and you work eight hours, that's just over 100 bucks. So let's say you've got ten $100 bills, and you lose one. It's kind of a big deal, right? You're going to look for it. For this woman, this is a huge problem. This money has been set away and saved for a rainy day or whatever it might be. It's a significant amount of money and she stops everything. She lights a lamp and she begins to search. She sweeps the house. Now, you know, in this day, most uh, of these Jewish homes would have been dark. Even during the day, there wasn't a lot of windows. So to see, you would have to light the dark and you would have to sweep the straw out of the floor that would typically cover a dirt floor. You sweep everything out. She's looking in all of the rocks, any corners. Where did it go? Where did this coin hit and bounce? She seeks diligently. I like that word. A faithful searcher. Until she finds it. Her life goes on hold until that coin is found. Now, how does she respond when she finds it? The heavenly celebration. Verse 9, And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin I had lost. And now listen to what Jesus says. Just so, I tell you, Pharisees and scribes, lawyers, 
there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's that word again. Amazing. Just one sinner will cause the heavens to erupt in celebration. Overflowing joy. I love the the wording here. Joy before the angels of God. Joy before them. So it's not just that they're invited into the celebration, but that God's response is not just, that's great, very good, very good. No, he is overjoyed. His joy is on display. Friends, when some of these young people who have uh, planned to be baptized here, they're telling me, you know, when I was five years old, I cried out to Jesus to save me from my sins, and he did, and, and I trust him with my life. Heaven rejoiced in that moment. That's why it's, it's entirely appropriate for us upon the baptism of these kids as we celebrate God's good work in their lives to erupt in joy and praise Him for what He's done to save these kids from their sins. He is the God who saves He's, he's the God who saves. He's a saving God. He doesn't have to be that kind of God. You realize that. He doesn't have to save any sinner. But because He is so good and so filled with grace and mercy, He doesn't just do it. He loves to do it. He loves to save. Repentance is His delight. Our response this morning is thinking about what we learn about God in these verses. Do you see? Do you see his heart? I just want, I want us together to see the heart of God. He is not a grumbling, annoyed, unwilling to forgive God. He is a God who loves to forgive. A God who made a way for sinners to be forgiven. He is the good shepherd, our Savior Jesus. He's truly a good shepherd and a rejoicing Savior. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I I just want to ask the question this morning, have you been found by Christ? Has He found you? And here's an easy way to answer that question. Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned to him and trusted him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to be your Savior, your Lord, your treasure, your shepherd? Has he found you? If if you're here today and you're saying, no, I, I, I have not repented of my sins, then I'm telling you right now, listen for his voice. Listen for his voice. Even as I speak, the voice of the shepherd can land in your soul and call you to repentance. Turn to Jesus. Trust Him with your life. Repent of your sins. Turn away from your your wanderings and your rebellion. Look to Him for forgiveness. He's done all the work. And you can be saved. 
by the God who loves to save. And you can be held with an invincible grip in the hand of the shepherd. No one will snatch you out of his hand. Come with me. But I'll leave with this. Only sinners can be saved by Jesus. Because I think his emphasis here is as much for church people as it is for those out in the world who have never darkened the doors of a church. Only sinners can be saved by Jesus. Humble yourself. Bow before Him. Acknowledge your sin. And you will be forgiven, friends. And there will be joy in heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Father, my heart overflows with gratitude for your grace to save me from my sins, to find me, to open my eyes, to, to change my heart, to show me the face of my Savior, Jesus Christ, to call life out of nothing in, into my soul, to, to make me new, and then to delight over me and the accomplishment of your sovereign saving work to see the repentance flow from my happy, willing heart, turning from sin and trusting you. Oh God, thank you for saving me. I didn't deserve it, but it will always be the song of my joy, my heart, forever. Lord, thank you for the salvation you have accomplished and you continue to accomplish even within these walls, Lord, and We just pray this morning that you would land these words for any here, young or old. I pray that they would see Jesus as the good shepherd, that they would hear his voice by your sovereign work. Even now, Spirit, move and and regenerate heart. Give life where there is no life. Stir, create a new heart. Cause this repentance to flow joyfully, happily as we look to Jesus as Savior. Father, just show grace, we pray, upon us. We don't deserve this. We, we delight in your love, your, your, your shepherding of your sheep. We thank you that you don't just look at us as a problem to be solved or uh, just an annoyance to be dealt with, but that you delight in saving us. What's amazing, Father, is that that delight becomes our delight forever. And we delight to worship you. You're so good. We thank you for what you've done. And we pray, oh God, that you would use us to be the mouthpiece of your voice. To to carry this good news into this dark world. Where there are people who have gone so far astray. Be it in religion or in just reckless sin against you, blatant and unapologetic. Help us to be bold to go to the places that you were happy to go, to herald the gospel, oh Jesus, like you did, and and to call for repentance, lovingly call for repentance. Make us bold like you were, Jesus. We thank you and give praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.